The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abuel Samad. Welcome to episode 32, where we're going to cover uh, self driving cars and the technology that we've talked about. For the yeah. last 32 episodes. <laughs> but first, the garage. Car- cars that are not self-driving. Right. Cars that we're driving ourselves, but not self-driving. What are you driving, sir? Uh, well, let's see. Since last week, uh, I had the uh, Hyundai Ionic Hybrid. Uh, we'll start with that and then uh, dive a little bit into the car that I actually have right now. Um, so the Ionic, I, I drove drove the Ionic briefly uh, a couple of months ago. Hyundai did a, a, media, a local media drive here in the Ann Arbor area. Uh, a couple of months back uh, with the hybrid and the battery electric versions of the Ionic. And I was really impressed with those. Uh, both of those are on sale now. Um, the battery electric is available in California and the nine other states that follow California's emission standards. Um, and it, it's the, the Ionic and also the, uh, the Kia Nero, you know, are both built on a new platform developed by Hyundai uh, that, you know, Although they say it's completely new and, and unique, uh, I'm sure that there are some, you know, there's there's no doubt some bits and pieces that are shared. You know, it's probably some suspension components and things like that that are shared with the Elantra and maybe even the, the Sonata. Uh, but, you know, overall, the, the platform is unique to this vehicle. It was designed specifically as an electrified propulsion platform. So they've got uh, three different three different powertrains that are available in this. There's the, the battery electric versions. There is a standard hybrid version and then a plug-in hybrid version. Uh, and the, the hybrid, uh, I, the battery electric Ionic is available now in California and some other states as I mentioned. The hybrid is available nationwide. And then the plug-in hybrid will be coming towards the end of the year. Uh, and uh, over on the Kia side, they've got the Nero, which is, same vehicle mechanically, but with a crossover style body. Um, and uh, that one you know, uh, is available as a hybrid and a plug-in hybrid uh, right now. And then well, the, uh, uh, the comes later. The plug-in uh, apparently isn't necessarily on sale yet. 
Uh, they're saying late 2017, but that okay. The the Nero. Actually, I wonder if um, Kia might have a more specific answer to that than than what they're saying. Like late 2017, I should should get on that. Yeah, I think I think it, I think you're probably I think you're right. I think it's coming closer to the same time that they're launching the um, the plug-in hybrid version of the Ionic as well. Yeah, probably. So. Probably finishing up whatever finishing up needs to go on. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, probably doing some final calibrations and stuff. <clears throat> Excuse me. But basically the the hybrid and the plug-in hybrid are essentially the same. The only real distinguishing factor between the two is the size of the battery. Uh this the standard hybrid, which is what I drove last week, um, has uh a 1.4 kilowatt hour lithium ion or sorry, 1.6 kilowatt hour lithium ion battery. And um, the plug-in hybrid is getting, uh, I think, a nine and a half kilowatt hour plug-in hybrid or pl- a battery that'll give it about twenty-seven miles of electric range. Are they different, um, like battery chemistries, or are they both like lions? Or as as far as I understand from from what what we've been told, uh, it's the same chemistry, just scaled up, just more cells, like physically larger. Yeah, yeah physically larger. Uh, so it takes up space under the cargo floor and under the rear seat, whereas the hybrid is the hybrid battery is only under the the cargo floor. Um, and but other than that, they're they're essentially the same. Um, so they you know they're all all the the hybrid variants are power you know have a one point six liter direct injected Atkinson cycle four cylinder, and uh. It, uh Kia or Hyundai and Kia, you know, have a unique setup with their uh, hybrid, with their their drive, their electric drivetrain, their hybrid electric drivetrain. Um, they have uh, the motor uh, sandwiched in between the engine and uh, the transmission. The uh, previous hybrids they've done up until now, based on the Sonata and Optima, used a standard six-speed uh, planetary gear automatic for the. Uh, Ionic and Nero, they've gone to uh, a dual clutch transmission, a seven speed dual clutch transmission uh, or sorry, a six, no, it's a six speed, six speed dual clutch transmission. Uh, so it um, it works really well. Uh, you know, so it's different from, you know, what uh, Ford and GM and Toyota do. You know, they they use a, a two motor setup with planetary gears, you know, to do a, 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 a basically an electronic continuously variable transmission system um the hyundai system you know uses a step gear setup so when you're driving it it feels more like a traditional uh internal combustion engine car you know you don't you don't you don't have any of that motor boating effect of a cvt um and typically you know on hybrids they don't they don't try to simulate the step gear uh feel like they do on a lot of non-hybrid uh cvts now um, so, you, uh, you don't get any of the, you know, go, the engine revs up to one speed and st- stays there as the car accelerates. It's, um, it just, ex- you know, accelerates in what seems like a fairly natural fashion. Um, and you know, the, the engine's 104 horsepower, uh, 32 kilowatt electric motor, which is a little less than 50 horsepower. And, you know, I found that, um, you know, it, it easily drove along on the high, you know, highway speeds at 70, 75 miles an hour, uh, when it had sufficient, uh, energy in the battery, you know, it would just shut down the engine and, and cruise along on electric drive with no problem at 70 miles an hour. Uh, and over the course of a week driving this thing, I, I got 51 miles per gallon with it. 
That's uh, pretty good. I mean, especially if you're not yeah, really paying I mean, any performance penalty. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it um, it's pretty much as good as any current Prius. Um, and, you know, I wasn't hypermiling it or anything, just, you know, driving normally, you know, not, you know, not drag racing or anything. I mean, you know, it's not particularly amenable to that. It's not that quick, but, um, you know, it's got plenty of performance. Um, it's feels more fun to drive than even the, the latest Prius. Um, and, you know, especially in the inside, it, it looks more normal than any Prius ever has. Um, and in that it looks more traditional, it doesn't have, you know, the, the uh, instruments in a little slit, you know, across the center of the top of the dashboard. Um, you know, it, it's got a conventional instrument cluster in front of the driver, you know, conventional touchscreen radio in the middle. Um, got support for Android Auto and Apple CarPlay, like all other uh, Hyundais and Kias now. Uh, so it, you know, it feels very conventional. Um, you know, nothing, nothing is going to surprise you. It just gets really good fuel economy and, you know, it's, it's quite practical as a, you know, as a five door hatchback, um, you know, and it's, you know, obviously the, the basic profile, you know, is very similar to all, but the first generation Prius, you know, very aerodynamic, uh, but it, it looks good. You know, I think they've, they've done a nice job on the styling, um, uh, you know, and uh, it's got plenty of room inside, plenty of room in the back seat uh, as well. Uh, lots of cargo room. So, you know, it's it's a good option. And, you know, if you prefer more of the, the crossover style bodywork, you know, then there's always the, the Kia, um, you know, which, is, like I said, is the same vehicle, with, you know, just a different body, just a different top hat on it. Uh, so, you know, yet you, you really have nothing to lose with this thing. So, I mean, we talk about the feature of cars a lot does this represent a particular vision of the future of cars i mean it sounds like they've they've made it a little bit more kind of normal uh you know like you're talking about the instruments not being weird like a prius and, and i think that the impression i get is that that's a plus in your book is it because you know people who want a prius they want the weirdness but some people just want the fuel economy and they don't want the weirdness right and i think i think that's where you know where this one shines you know it gives you all of the upside you know in in terms of fuel efficiency of a of a prius but without the um without the weirdness you know so i think to to people that you know aren't necessarily looking to stand out in the crowd. I mean, you know, one of the things about the Prius, you know, for, for much of its history, a lot of the, a lot of the customers, um, you know, tended to uh, migrate towards the Prius, you know, if they were looking for a green car, because it did look different. And, you know, when, when you saw a Prius, you knew what it was um, and you knew whoever was driving it was, was being green. You know, they were right, being more efficient. What's more efficient than buying a brand new car? Well, <laughs> what's what's aside, eco, aside, you know. aside from that? Uh, I, I mean, I get, it, I get it. If you need one yeah. anyway, you, sure. you, it certainly gives the perception that you're you're driving green, um, you know. And you know, this one, you know, the the Ionic, you know, it it looks efficient, but it doesn't look um, dramatically weird. You know, it looks it looks pretty conventional. Um, yeah, it's got that like aerodynamic sort yeah. of shape that all. Uh, super efficient cars tend to take on because you know there's physics and you really can't get around it right <laughs> so you know i think for somebody that just wants to just wants to have a normal car and doesn't want to really experience anything different from what they have always driven but just want more efficiency 
it's a great option, you know, and, you know, it's also, you know, Hyundai has been very aggressive on the, uh, on the pricing uh, of the Ionics, you know, all, you know, or at least both the, uh, the battery electric and the, uh, the hybrid versions of the Ionic. Uh, the hybrid starts, I think at uh, about 22,000, I think. Yeah. For, yeah. 22,000 uh, for the Ionic blue, which is, you know, I mean, that's, right in the heart of, you know, compact car territory, um, you know, cruise civic, uh, you know, um, any, any of those models, you know, Elantra. So you're, you're getting, you know, incredible fuel efficiency without really paying much in terms of a price premium or really sacrificing anything in terms of functionality or, you know, just livability with the car. Uh, so, you know, it's, and unlike, you know, unlike Toyota, which you know, has insisted on not supporting Android Auto and CarPlay, you know, you do get that as well uh, when you buy the Ionic. So I think, you know, I think it's it's an excellent choice for somebody that, that does want something more efficient um, and, you know, wants wants something that also feel at the same time feels conventional. Yeah, well, it's nice to see that. I mean, there's there's options, right? Because the, yeah. the, the biggest kind of complaint i had about the prius is that it's it's sort of it's the prius you know it's it's its own conspicuous kind of uh thing that and you have to live with the priusness of it and they're the new and, and ones visually the current one you know the, the current one drives a lot better than any prius before yeah but it but still drives it looks prius. it looks even more distinctively prius you know yeah. I and mean, it's it's even more set apart from the crowd which i mean i understand when you're trying to sell priuses that's a good thing um and when you're a cranky auto writer from an ivory tower that's not so <laughs> take that opinion for for what it's worth um what else have you been driving so uh the uh the ionic went away a couple of days after we recorded our last show and uh since then i have been driving the uh a mazda uh, miata rf uh, I'm which sorry. is yeah, so the RF is the new hardtop uh, version of the Miata. Uh, on the previous generation, the, the NC generation Miatas, they had a retractable hardtop roof as an option um, that when it was up, it had the exact same shape as the convertible. The only difference was it was hard instead of fabric. Uh, and, you know, it went up and down really quickly. And the whole thing went down when it was down. It looked exactly the same as a conventional uh, convertible uh, Miata. You know, so it, it there there was no no real visual distinction with the top down. It just gave you you know better all weather capability. This time around for the RF, they've gone for more of a, a targa look for the thing. So what you effectively have is kind of a a, a sort of a pseudo targa roll bar when the top goes down. Uh, and when when you put the top down, uh, the um, the glass rear window goes down with it. It's part of the top mechanism. So you have the the, the basically a roll bar, a wide roll bar that lifts up and out of the way. And then the top goes down and then the roll bar sits back down on top of it. Uh, so it's kind of a, it's a, kind of a different look. I'm, I think, you know, if I was buying a new Miata, I would probably stick with the standard convertible. I wouldn't, I don't think I would go for the RF, but aside from that, um, you know, it is every bit a Miata, you know, everything Miatas have always been, which is, you know, small, light, fun to drive. And, you know, it's funny, I took it out um, and photographed it the other day alongside my car, which is a first generation Miata. And, you know, it's amazing in, in many respects, 
Um, I mean, obviously the design, particularly with this current fourth generation car has uh, changed quite a bit and taken on much more of a, of a um, visual likeness to the rest of the current Mazda lineup, you know, in its design language. Uh, but in terms of everything else about it, you know, the, the size, the proportions, it has stayed very true to its original concept. Uh, you know, in fact, the current Miata is actually about an inch shorter from yeah. nose to tail than the original. Um, the convertible version is only about 100 pounds heavier, even though, you know, it's obviously got a lot more stuff. It's got more airbags, uh, more structure, more of everything than the, than the original did. Um, and, you know, then the RF adds you know a little less than 100 more pounds to that. Uh, but, you know, even that, you know, the RF is just over 2,400 pounds, which by modern standards is, you know, a featherweight. Uh, um, you know, it's, you know, it is more powerful than than mine. Um, you know, 155 horsepower now from the, the latest 1.6 liter Sky Active four cylinder. Um, but, you know, it doesn't feel incredibly quick, but, it, you know, it does have that same kind of nimble feel. I think the 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 biggest distinction between my 27 year old Miata and the new one it really is mine. You know, it, my mine uh, by comparison feels delicate. Uh, hmm. You know, it, it doesn't, you know, the new one feels much more structurally solid. Well, I mean, because it is, but it's, well, yeah, it's, that's I mean, you interesting. Can, you can feel, you can feel that difference. I mean, it feels like it's milled out of one giant block of metal. Uh, so, I mean, it feels really solid compared to mine. Uh, you know, mine, you know, you can you can feel it shiver when you go over bumps um, well, a lot more than this one does. And, you know, still, but, you know, by comparison to, you know, cars of its era, it was really good. Uh, the Miata was always, you know, pretty solid. But compared to modern cars, you know, it's nowhere near the same. And, you know, the other the other distinction is that the belt line is higher now. So you feel like you're even though you're not, you feel like you're sitting lower in the car. You feel like there's more car around you because the belt line is a little bit higher. Whereas mine, you know, when I if I put my elbow up on the on the windowsill, you know, it's you know, it's it, the, the belt line is below my shoulder, which, you know, it's it's not <laughs> yeah. in the new one. Yeah. No, new cars aren't aren't like that. I mean, it's. It's funny that you say that the older one feels delicate. And I guess in that perspective, it would the old versus new because, you know, getting in a Miata now, a current one that is it, delicate is a word I would use to describe the current one versus other cars you, you may be driving. Yeah, certainly compared to anything, anything else contemporary, it does feel delicate. But by comparison, you know, to my old one, it feels you know, totally different in, in, in that way. Um, you know, it, it's, like I said, it, it feels solid as a rock. Um, whereas mine does not. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm well aware of what the consequences would be if I was going through an intersection and somebody ran a red light or a stop sign, uh, in the new one versus mine. But, uh, you know, it's a price I'm willing to pay. You know, it's a small, light, nimble car. You'll be able to avoid it. Yeah, sure. Sure. I would tell that's actually <laughs> funny. Like uh, that's that's a really good uh, pivot to what I'm driving this week, which was the uh, it, it went away. Something not quite so nimble. Yeah, uh, not not or small quite, and light. But, yeah, definitely not small and light, but not not terrible. So I had the um, the Mustang GT convertible, um, 
And the reason why I say that, you know, an impending car crash is, is a good pivot is I almost got clobbered in this thing yesterday. Um, oh, really? Yeah. I discovered that uh, or I was reminded that uh, not all Saturn SLs had anti-lock brakes. Oh, because <laughs> I, I was, I, you know, part of my commute is highway. Uh, most of my commute is highway. And sometimes in the morning you come come upon those things where you come around a curve or up a hill and solar glare gets everybody. And you just like you know, it makes that they call it a backward traveling wave uh, as people, you know, tap their brakes. And then it just it creates this thing. So sometimes you wind up stopped in the left lane on the highway, which is OK, but. Uh, it makes you nervous when you look in your mirror and you see the car behind you hasn't started slowing down and then you keep watching and their closing speed is such that you know it's going to hurt and you're like I've got nowhere to go which was my situation <laughs> I'm just watching this Saturn cruise up on me at like 50 something miles an hour and so anyway I honked she eventually paid attention I moved as much out of the way as I could and this morning there were two straight skid marks because it felt like it took a minute and a half for her to stop she locked up her brakes there's tire smoke and everybody around me is just watching aghast it was a <laughs> great time great time <laughs> sounds like it was a blast yeah uh, so I almost crash tested the Mustang convertible which I'm glad I didn't uh, and I'm glad I, I got to drive it after having recent experience with the uh, the GT 350R uh, as well because um, I, I really really loved that most extreme of Mustangs but this one has an awful lot of performance for not a ton of money. I I'm not a real I'm not a convertible guy, but it's it's not a bad convertible. Uh, it's fairly solid for what it is. And, you know, it's it's an enjoyable car. It's definitely that sort of older idiom of, you know, muscle car. But uh, yeah, I, I did. I did like it. And I think it's it's a it's a very good value for what it is. Manual or automatic manual. Oh, excellent. Yeah, I would, I would be much less impressed if it was the automatic. Not that it doesn't perform as well, but it's way less engaging. It's a really good manual to drive, and it has um, you know, some selectable drive modes, which, which help it uh, sort of come alive. Um, but I, I had a... Uh, this, this helped me develop a theory uh, about the current Mustang and where it fits in Ford's lineup. And I think I've come to the conclusion that the Mustang has really become it's, it's now filling the role of, you know, the Thunderbird and the actual sort of spiritual successor to the Mustang would be something more like the Fiesta ST or the Focus ST. Hmm. Interesting idea. Because the Mustang is on its own platform. Mm -hmm. It's much more of a sports car now, which the Thunderbird started off as a sports car competitor to the uh the corvette and it very quickly they wanted to actually sell them so they they made it a four seat car uh you know it, be, it became a luxury coupe over, yeah you know and, by, with by its second or third generation right and, and so the mustang is definitely not a, a luxury coupe in that sense but it's it's on it's it doesn't share its platform with any other ford uh it's a serious performance car and that's it's like it's, it's a sports car um it's not economy car hardware sort of like with it done up as you know best as they can make it behave you know still slightly hairy 
and and you know rough around the edges, which is what the Mustang had always been up until the S197, you know, up until it really got its first dedicated platform. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, it just makes me think of, you know, the 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 Thunderbird always really was a more refined performer. I think back to, you know, the days of the Fox body, right? You had the the MN12 Thunderbird that was, you know, that was a, a much more refined platform. It was heavier, much heavier than the and, Fox. And very expensive to produce as it, well. It was, but it was just wonderfully engineered and it drove beautifully. And, uh, you know, like you'd get a Thunderbird Super Coupe um, or the Thunderbird with the V8. It was a pretty formidable car. Um, yeah, at one point in the in the late eighties, Ford actually seriously considered um, using the MN12 platform, a shortened MN12, as the basis for a new Mustang to replace the Fox body. Um, and they had they built some mules, and there were there were some um, some spy photos that popped up uh, somewhere around eighty seven or eighty eight, uh, showing a you know a, a super a Thunderbird Super Coupe um, that had been shortened by about six or eight inches. Huh. Uh, you know, showing it running on the track somewhere. Uh, and yeah, you know, I think, uh, if I recall correctly, there was actually some tuner that actually built a handful of them, you know, custom ones, you know, took, took Thunderbirds and actually cut them down and, and sold a few of them. But, um, you know, Ford actually did evaluate that, but decided that it was going to be way too expensive, uh, for a Mustang at that time. Yeah. Um, and, and too heavy as well, because the MN12 platform was pretty heavy. Oh, it was. Yeah, it was. And it was it was late and over budget. And, you right. know, for all of its its upsides, it, it did not meet its platform targets or its program targets, as they say. <laughs> right? Yeah. So so they they abandoned that plan and uh, decided, OK, well, we'll do a front wheel drive Mustang instead on a, on a <laughs> right. platform. And uh, we all know how that turned out as well. You know, as soon as. Uh, as soon as word of that got out and, and spy photos showed up on the cover of Auto Week, uh, you know, with, you know, the, the, the headline, you know, this is the new Mustang. Um, you know, there was a massive uproar from Mustang fans. And within days, um, that car became the probe. Uh, and, and then, you know, then they decided, OK, fine, we'll, we'll go ahead and do the SN95, which was a, a major refresh of the, the Fox body. Yeah, on a shoestring budget. Um, yeah. But I, I will say that the, like the first generation probe doesn't really do anything for me. But the second generation, that car was as entertaining, if not more than the Mustang by that point. By say, when did the second generation probe come out? Ninety three, ninety four, something like that. Yeah. Not, I think not, yeah, I think ninety three. It was a it was really, really good looking. Um, and then a probe GT handled really well. Uh, and it just like. I we don't have cars like that anymore. Like Ford had they had the they had the probe, they had the Mustang, they had the Thunderbird. They they have much less variety in their uh lineup now when you consider that. But uh Well, I, you know, I mean, I think, you know, in in that, you know, if you want something of that sort of character of the probe, you know, probably the closest thing to that today would be the Focus ST. That's true. That's true. Um oh and that I guess that can bring us full circle to sort of my historical, yeah, you know, thing. So the Mustang started off as it was it was the Falcon. It was economy car stuff that they you know, they made it look pretty. Nobody's going to argue that the the first Mustang wasn't really really handsome, uh, and they they put the you know the biggest engine they could in it, 
that but they weren't all it would start off with the 260 or the 289 uh 260 for in 65 uh right. at, at, the, at launch it was the 260 and then they added in the 289 partway through the model year yeah um most and that's the k code right is the type. well there were a couple different 289 variants oh, the okay. k code was the high output version so that had a four barrel carburetor that was uh 271 horsepower that was the, <laughs> so, that was the k code engine so much power in a falcon platform <laughs> Well, and especially, you know, if you, well, keep in mind, that was 271. It was gross. Yeah, but even so, so, like, that's a lot of torque. And yeah, yeah, I mean, in today's terms, that would be closer to, you know, a little over 200 horsepower. But still, when you consider the kinds of tires and, um, you know, drum brakes that were on that thing, that was way too much power. Yeah, and and the Falcon, you know, without the engine, the Falcon weighed like, what, 1,200 pounds? Like, it was just not its... Yeah, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, that but that's what the Mustang started from. And then, you know, the Mustang two, the, the Mustang, I guess, in the late 60s and early 70s did get sort of flabby. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it got progressively bigger and heavier. And, you know, they, they they by about 67, they started putting big block engines in there. So they had to beef up the chassis put bigger brakes and tires on there, you know, so it got bigger and heavier, you know, to support those 427, 428, 429, you know, engines in there. Um, and, you know, by 72, you know, I mean, you know, it was, it was pretty, it was a pretty large car. Yeah. They called it the Mustang Grande. And, and what was that? What did that share? It's, it's chassis with. Uh, well, that was, it was an evolution of the original Falcon chassis. They just, they just kept beefing it up. So all, all those cars from 64 to 73 um, were, that was, those were all considered the first generation Mustang. So if you got really creative, you, you could, because the Maverick was another evolution of the original Falcon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you could make a as, 429. As the original Cougar, the first yeah. generation Mercury Cougar. So you could make a 429 Maverick. That'd be interesting. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure it's been done. Oh, I'm I, sure. I think I've, I think I've seen some. Um, at, you know, at the Woodward Dream Cruise, you know, places like that. I'm sure you see everything with a giant engine at uh, Woodward Dream Cruise. So the, but the next the next step was the the Pinto based Mustang too, uh, yeah. and then the Fairmont based Fox body Mustang. So like just. You know, Mustangs have always been economy car stuff and, and they're not now. They're they're their own thing. Yeah. I and, mean, you know, the the Mustang is the last rear wheel drive car in the Ford lineup. Yeah. You know, even Lincoln doesn't have a rear wheel drive car anymore. Uh, their last rear drive car was uh, did the town car outlive the LS? I can't remember. Um, I yeah. Yeah, I think it did. The LS went away before the town car did. So, you know, the Lincoln doesn't have any rear drive car platforms anymore. Um, The Mustang is the only one in the Ford brand lineup. And, you know, it, it does. I mean, there are some shared components of the Mustang. The, the front half of the car is completely unique to Mustang. Um, The rear, the rear axle, the rear suspension setup shares its architecture with um the fusion although there there are no interchangeable parts um all all the part all the part numbers are unique to mustang because they've you know they've been beefed up a little bit um 
but it's the same same basic architecture. Uh, the track is a little wider, but it's same same layout uh, with an integral link uh, setup. Uh, and it, you know, it so the the whole thing you know, as a whole, the thing is completely unique. Um, and you know, there there were some some rumblings al- along the way that at some point they might do a Lincoln off of that platform. But at this point, it, it doesn't look like that's ever going to happen. Uh, I think Lincoln's probably better off not trying to do a rear wheel drive car. And that's that's a different subject. But yeah, uh, at least until they really get themselves really established again. Uh, for now, they're probably better off to focus on what they have and, you know, get that out there, focus on, you know, their their whole customer experience. But that's that's a whole other story to talk about someday. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's unique. Um, you know, the fact that it is rear wheel drive though, means that, uh, come 2020, they are going to be able to use the, uh, the hybrid powertrain that they're developing for the F-150 they they've announced back in January that they're going to do a hybrid Mustang for, uh, for 2020. Huh. Uh, and there, I saw, uh, some, I saw a story from, uh, somewhere online yesterday or the day before, um, that, uh, they'll probably do uh, a hybrid version of the Bronco as well, which would actually make a lot of sense, uh, since they're going to have this rear wheel drive hybrid system it makes perfect sense to put that at least in the Bronco and, and maybe in the new Ranger as well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, especially if you're going to develop it for a rear driver, then you just sort of scale the design. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, well, good. I mean, I'm not sure what a hybrid Mustang is going to be like, but uh, well, uh, based on what I've heard from from people I've talked to, it's definitely going to be geared more towards performance enhancement. I mean, you know, it'll give a fuel economy bump, but, um, you know, we're, we're not talking, you know, a 50 mile per gallon or even a 40 mile per gallon Mustang uh, with that thing. You know, it's it might be, you know, uh, you know, high 20s, you know, low 30s. Um, you know, and then mated with um, a reasonably powerful engine, you know, so you, you get the comp- using the electric drive as much for performance enhancement as for outright fuel economy. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I was I saw an Acura NSX today up close for the first time. It has that thing has presence and that's a hybrid. And uh, it that did not dissuade me from wanting to, um, you know, take it for a spin. So. Yeah, well, hey, you know, the, the LaFerrari, the Porsche 918, and the McLaren P1 are all hybrids, so. It's a, yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for it. Yeah. Um. All right, well, let's get to some, some news, unless uh, you wanted to, we could we could have a side discussion about uh, the 450-mile tunnel that Elon Musk is going to dig. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have much to say about it yeah. other than I don't think it's going to happen. I'll, I'll, I'll believe that when... Uh... When yeah. I see him pop out the pop out the end of the tunnel, <laughs> right? Yeah, at the far end. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, considering they apparently they got verbal agreement from the White House. Yeah. The, um, the, what 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 is that? That that means nothing. <laughs> right. Of course not. It's got to go through a bunch of cities and towns. Everybody's going to want their cut. And uh, it's, yeah. <laughs> nope. Nope. Nobody has ever built a 450 mile tunnel before, and I. Do not believe Elon Musk can successfully do it. I don't even is the longest tunnel. The longest tunnel in the world is less than 100 miles, right? It's like not even I don't think it's even 20 miles. Yeah. So. And, you know, that's that's through the Alps. 
Yeah, so the challenges of building a tunnel, like, first of all, they collect water. You need to ventilate them, you need to drain them. Over 450 miles, like, I just, I don't understand how that's going to actually work. You know, for for the Hyperloop, I mean, you know what, he wants to run the Hyperloop system through this thing. And for the Hyperloop, you've got to keep the interior of that tunnel near vacuum. Because that's that's the whole premise, you know, is that it the pods run in a near vacuum. That's right. Um, to minimize friction and uh, aerodynamic drag. I so. mean, I, I look. You know what? If he can solve all those challenges or even some of them, like, fine, dream, dream big, and and do your thing. But it just seemed like a nonsense statement. Like got verbal approval from the White House. That's great. Like, yeah. Hey, okay. Why don't you try that tunnel thing? Figure it out. Get back to me when it's done. That's verbal approval from Dan. Yeah. <laughs> on, on something a little more real, um, on uh, Tuesday, uh, I had a chance to uh, go over to the Nissan R&D Center here in Farmington Hills, Michigan, about a half hour from here, and um, take a, uh, we got a presentation, and then I had a chance to go for uh, a, a drive in uh, a prototype Nissan Rogue equipped with the ProPilot Assist system. And uh, ProPilot Assist uh, is already on the market in Japan in the uh, Serena minivan. Uh, and it will debut in North America this fall in the uh, second generation Nissan Leaf uh, and then be added to a bunch of other Nissan models in 2018. Um, what's, um, what's interesting about this, Nissan's calling it their first uh, level two automated driving system. And uh, back in January at CES and then again at the North American Auto Sh- International Auto Show here in Detroit, uh, Carlos Ghosn, who was then CEO of Nissan, and he's, he's now uh, stepped down from that. He's just the chairman of Nissan, um, talked extensively about this system and, and what Nissan's plans were for automated driving. And he, at the time, you know, repeatedly referred to this as an autonomous driving system. Uh, and one thing that came up very quickly in the presentation before we had a chance to go for a drive was Nissan made it very clear that this is not, I repeat, not a self-driving system. It's, it's a driver assist system, which is why they added the assist, the word assist to the branding. So it's ProPilot assist. Right. It's, it's ADAS. It's yeah. yeah, it's an ADAS system. And what it is, is it's taking the, uh, the lane keeping systems that they have today and the adaptive cruise control, uh, there's no new hardware involved. Uh, it's the same cameras and uh, mobile eye uh, compute platform and uh, the radar sensors that they use today. Um, just adding some new software, some enhanced software and controls to it um, to give it lane centering capability uh, and full stop and go um, uh, adaptive cruise control. So, you know, in in a way, it's similar to what, uh, you know, what Cadillac does with Super Cruise, except that this is not designed to be a hands off system. And in fact, you know, it it makes it it tries very hard to make sure that you do keep your hands on the system, on the steering wheel when you're when you're uh, driving. Um, it, you know, it will, you know, dr- we took it for a drive, um, you know, about 25 miles uh, along I-696 on the north side of Detroit. And, you know, it does a very good job of tracking, tracking the lane and staying in the center of the lane, not drifting back and forth and bouncing off the lane markers. I mean, it, it held the lane really well under the ideal conditions in which we drove it, you know, on Tuesday morning, sunny summer morning. Um, and, 
but if if you take your hands off the wheel, uh, you know, uses uses torque sensor in the wheel, much like most lane keeping systems do. And after after about five seconds of either hands off the wheel or very light touch on the wheel, if it doesn't feel some feedback and some resistance from your hands uh, moving the wheel a little bit, uh, you know, it'll it'll start to warn you and it gives you a uh, a warning in the instrument cluster and then it it uh, beeps um, and then after about uh, 15 seconds it'll actually use the, uh, the brake controls for the stability control it'll pulse that a couple of times to basically jerk the car a little bit to say hey pay attention <laughs> and if after another 15 seconds you don't respond and you're not holding the steering wheel it will actually start to slow the car down um, and once it gets below 40 miles an hour, it turns on the hazard lights and it'll bring the car to a full stop. Uh, and it, it punishes you. <laughs> well, if it, it, you know, it's, it's assuming it's designed to assume that, you know, if you're not holding the wheel for that long, that you either aren't paying attention or you've become incapacitated. You're, you're comatose. But so, but what's the, that's very safe and, uh, avoids liability or plausibly avoids liability, but my like, what good is making self-driving technology if you have to keep your hand on the wheel? Like the whole point is the, the what we're being sold, the dream we're being sold is like kick back and pay attention to everything but driving because the car drives itself. So scroll away on your Facebook and you know, like yeah, well, like you said, you know, this is designed in as as an assist system, so it's designed to reduce the workload on the driver improve safety, uh, reduce stress, especially when you're driving in, in traffic or on a long road trip. You know, if you're on a long road trip, you know, a lot of times, you know, uh, you may find yourself starting to drift off to one side or the other, <coughs> excuse me. And this system will make sure that he, the car stays centered in the lane. So you're not going to start drifting. The car is not going to start drifting, you know, um, and you know, if you're not paying attention for whatever reason, you know, it'll, It'll alert you. I mean, you know, uh, short of becoming comatose, um, you know, you when you hear that first beep, you know, then you're going to realize, oh, shit. OK, but, you know, put a tighter grip on the wheel and, and yeah. keep going. So it's actually not not that big of a problem. I mean, um, yeah, but the, so and, and you, you can drive, you know, feet off the pedals. You know, so if you're driving, you know, if you're commuting and you're in traffic and it's stop and go traffic, you don't have to. You know, you're not constantly going back and forth between the gas and accelerator. It will it will just track along with traffic for you. So, so that that puts us in the uncanny valley of like, you know, is it truly self-driving or because uh, like if, it, if it's supposed to be an assist system, then you're still supposed to pay attention. But if it's doing a lot of the work, you're, you're like it allows you to get lazy, right? It allows that, you to, that, that is, that is absolutely a risk, um, that you will get lazy and, and really not pay attention. Um, and that's, that's why they want to make sure that, you know, hands are on the wheel because like, you know, if your hands are on the wheel and have a sufficient grip on the, on the wheel, um, you're probably going to be paying enough attention to be ready. You know, if for whatever reason, the system can't do what it's supposed to do. Um, so, I, you know, I think my bigger concern with this is because, you know, it's it's based on a, a monovision camera system for the lane centering. Uh, you know, so the radar tracks your distance and speed to the, the vehicle ahead of you. 
but uh, the camera is what's actually looking for the lane markings. So you've got to have good, clear lane markings on both sides of you or, or the system won't activate. And that's that's why they're, they're pitching it as like a highway system. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a highway only system. Uh, although, they're, you know, unlike the Super, GM Super Cruise, there's no geofencing. So there's no mechanism to prevent you from activating it in the city. But they, they tell you to only use it on the highway. Yeah, it's just not going to function as well when there's because it needs the lane markings. So. Right. I mean, if you've got, you know, if you're driving the city and there's lane markings, it'll it'll work fine. Um, but the 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 thing is, well, let me rephrase that. It'll work fine as long as it can detect those lane markings, right. which there's no guarantee that it can do that. I mean, you know. Yeah. Come to Massachusetts. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, as, as we've talked about before, you know, every one of these systems that I've tried from pretty much every manufacturer uh, and most of them are made by Mobileye. Um, you know, are very hit and miss in their ability to actually detect lane markings. Uh, you know, that I, you know, we talked to, you know, when I had the BMW 530 a couple of months ago, you know, um, drive, you know, going for a drive one morning. And when the sun was coming from, from the side uh, and hitting, you know, I was driving along a freshly paved road. It was only paved a couple of months before nice, fresh, you know, clear lane markings, good contrast. But when the sun was coming from the side, the system could not detect the lane markings at all. When I was driving into the sun or away from the sun, worked great. You know, perfect. You know, perfect detection. So I'm, you know, I'm going to reserve final judgment until I've had a chance to spend more time with it and drive it on more different kinds of roads. Um, but certainly, you know, within the the context of what the system is designed to do, it worked. It worked quite well. It did a really good job on lane centering. Did a good job on the the cruise control part of it. Uh, and it's just a question of how reliable is the detection system going to be? Yeah, well, I mean, and it, those are getting better all the time. I, I'm impressed that it's a, it's a single camera and, and like it, it's it's a small suite of of sensing technology for for the yeah. function you get out of it. I'm impressed with that. It's it's showing progress. Yeah, yeah, no, de- definitely. And um, I said, you know, the the leaf. The new leaf is going to be revealed on September 6th uh, and then it'll be on sale here before the end of the year. So hopefully before Christmas, we'll have a chance to actually try it out and uh, and see how it works. And we'll see if it can actually, you know, work in the wintertime around here in Michigan. I, I'm, I'm assuming that it'll be again, like everything's going to be kind of like hit or miss. But I, I'm assuming that when the conditions are right and there's there's an envelope for conditions, right? Like. Certainly ideal conditions are clear roads, you know, good visibility, well-marked lanes. Yep. Um, the edges of that envelope are going to be, you know, less well-marked lanes and less clear roads and, you know, depend- overcast or in a, in a snow, you know, in a, in a flurry or something, you know, how, how well is it going to do? I'm sure it has some capability and it'll return some performance, but at a, you know, at a certain point, it's going to throw up its hands and be like, Nope, you take the wheel. Well, what's interesting is during the drive, I was, um, my passenger was, uh, Andy Christensen, who's a senior manager, uh, senior engineering manager of, uh, uh, automated driving systems or intelligent driving systems at Nissan. Uh, so he, he oversees a lot of the work on, on these systems on the ADAS and the automated driving stuff. And, um, he, you know, as a member of SAE, he has actually been on the, uh, he was, he's a member of the committee that defined the automated driving levels. So levels zero through five 
and he's you know, he's worked on that committee for several years. And we had a fascinating discussion during the drive. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, level four and level five in particular. Uh, and one of the one of the things he brought up that I hadn't really thought of before, you know, the with level four automation, you know, level four is defined as, you know, the vehicle is able to um, drive completely with or operate completely without human intervention, but within limited operating domains. So, you know, there's certain conditions where it can operate. So that might be, you know, driving in the city or it might be just driving on the highway. Um, but, you know, it can it can operate and, you know, stop and start and do everything it needs to do without any human interaction um, and without ever having to hand off to a human driver. So level three system, you know, can drive largely autonomously, but it can it occasionally has to hand off to a human when it can't handle things. Level four is the next step where if it can't handle the situation, it can bring itself to a safe stop. Uh, and then level five is the ability to do that under all conditions. So um, the thing is, you know, how you, you know, whatever you define as the operating domain of the vehicle, you know, could can vary widely, uh, you know, for a level four vehicle. It can be a low speed vehicle that just operates around a campus. Um, or, you know, it can be a vehicle that can op do full function operation around a city, you know, like a ride hailing vehicle. And he gave a, a fascinating example that uh, had never occurred to me uh, here in Detroit Metro Airport in the, the main terminal. There's a tram that runs up and down the length of this mile long terminal, and it's completely automated. There's no no humans operating the thing. You know, there's two cars that operate go in opposite directions along the same track and they they meet in the middle and they split and they go past each other. And there's never anyone operating this thing. And uh, if something goes wrong, it just comes to a stop wherever it is. So technically, that's a level four vehicle. Its operating domain is limited to that track, that mile long track in the terminal. But that's its domain and that it operates completely autonomously within that. So. You know, that's just one example of how a very limited level four can be, you know, and then it can be something that operates almost everywhere. Yeah, well, I mean, that's you it's that's that's good practice, right? You you test it under controlled conditions. You learn, you refine, you improve and the, the conditions which it can operate under it continually expand as its capabilities get better. Seems seems logical to me. Yeah. But what do I know? I'm not an engineer. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, what else? What else is going on? We you got well, yourself quoted. So, well, well, uh, before before we get oh, to that, uh, I got all excited. I'm sorry. Let's let's, let's uh, hit one more Nissan thing and then we'll go to that. that oh, story. the e-pedal. The e yeah. So uh, yesterday, Nissan announced uh, you know, and, and it, it appears that with all the um, uh, Ford expatriates that are now working um, at uh, Nissan PR. Um, they, one of the lessons they've learned is to trickle out information continuously for months leading up to the reveal of a new vehicle. Yeah, preferably case. years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're they're not going to quite the extreme that that Ford typically does. But at any rate, um, you know, the we'll, over the next six weeks, six or seven weeks until the reveal of the Leaf, we'll be hearing lots more about it. But uh, another item we heard about this week was the e-pedal um, system, which, uh, you know, we, when we when we talked about the Bolt uh, a couple of weeks ago, 
you know, uh, I talked about the, you know, how when you put the shifter into low, you get much stronger regenerative braking. And similarly, the BMW i3 does that. And the, uh, the leaf is going to have, you know, what they're calling e-pedal, uh, which will activate, uh, you know, when you, when you press the switch, it will activate much stronger regenerative braking. Um, so you, you can do one pedal driving much as you do in the bolt. That's right. Uh, yeah. They announced that. The what, I think they announced that today that the new, the new uh, leaf is going to have that kind of one. pedal. Yeah. I think it was, yeah, it was yesterday actually as, as they record, oh, as we record this, but at any rate, um, one of the, you know, one of the things they're doing, you know, is that it will, it will bring the car to a complete stop um, when you just lift off the accelerator without you actually having to touch the brake. And it'll hold it there, you know, on level ground or even on a on a hill, which actually the bolt will also do. Um, but uh, you know what um, what Nissan's doing a little differently is when the car comes to a stop, they're actually activating the hydraulic brake system using the the stability control actuator to actuate the regular friction brakes to hold the car in place until you press the accelerator pedal again. Um, and you know, there that's you know, when they made the e-pedal announcement, they said, you know, it's a world's first, you know, that it's re regenerative braking that'll bring the car to a complete stop, you know, without touching the brake and then hold it there. And that's actually not entirely true because, like I said, the Bolt does that. But they're doing, they're implementing it a little differently. They're they're using the hydraulic brakes to hold the car. Uh, GM on the Bolt, uh, what they actually do is when once the car comes to a stop, uh, they actually give a little trickle of juice back to the motor. So instead of uh, the motor charging the battery uh, for regenerative braking, they're actually using a little bit of motor torque to actually hold the car still. So they're giving just enough juice to keep it from moving, uh, which is an interesting approach. So they don't actually use the the friction brakes at all unless you actually press the brake pedal. Why? Why would you do it that way? Why would Ford GM do it that way, or why would Nissan do it that way? Well, why would you implement it that way at all? I'm just I'm. I don't know. I guess I don't follow why you would not want to use the friction brakes. I, I guess like because you want max regen, but isn't there at a certain point you need the friction brakes even? Well, uh, I guess so. Yeah, you don't, actually, you don't you don't really need the friction brakes. That's that's the thing. So, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> as the car comes to a stop, as you get down to low speed, you once you get down below about five miles an hour or so. Um, Traditionally, you know, with hybrids and EVs up until now, what they've typically done is uh, at about five miles an hour, you start at, at that speed. You don't have enough actual kinetic energy because the way regen is working is you're taking kinetic energy of the, the moving car and you're using that to drive the motor as a generator to charge the battery. Um, but as your speed drops, your kinetic energy drops. And so... At low speed, you don't have enough kinetic energy to actually provide enough braking force. So what they traditionally have done up until now is the control system um, actually, you know, as you're coming to a stop, um, it actually ramps out the, the regenerative braking and actually starts to ramp up the hydraulic braking, um, much as Nissan is actually doing right now. Uh, when, you, when you're actually when you're holding the, the brake, when you're pressing the brake pedal, they do this so you get combination of regen and and friction braking and at low speed it, it phases out the regen and gives you just friction braking <clears throat> and uh with the um with the bolt 
um, they don't actually do that unless you actually press the brake pedal. If you press the brake pedal, it'll kick out the regen and just do friction braking. But if you just take your foot off the accelerator pedal, it will okay. uh, it will start giving you some reverse torque. You know, it'll it'll actually start feeding energy back to the motor to give you that last little bit of stopping power that you need to bring the car to a complete stop. Uh, and Nissan is doing it with actually applying the brakes, even applying the friction brakes without use without you pressing the brake pedal. Um, you know, so it's just different ways of achieving the same the same goal of stopping <laughs> of stopping. Yes, but the the key for both the Bolt uh, and the BMW i3 and the Leaf is to enable one pedal driving, which, you know, if you've ever done that in heavy traffic conditions and stop and go traffic, it's actually really nice. Oh yeah. It's the best. I mean, it's why I, I don't like automatics for, I mean, for a few reasons, but one of the reasons why I don't like them is they creep. And I, you know, in stop and go traffic, it's the worst. I just want the damn thing to stay put. Yeah. And, you know, not having to, go back and forth between the gas and the brake all the time, you know, is, is actually really nice when you're slowing down and speeding up, you know, once, once you get used to modulating that one pedal to give, get the amount of deceleration you want, it, it, it's so much more relaxing. Yeah. One of these days, all cars will drive that way, but we'll have to accept. Well, well there's that, actually, yeah. there's actually no reason they couldn't do it today. Uh, I, I wrote a, a blog post about this on, on my company blog at Navigant Research a couple of years ago when I drove the i3. Um, you could actually do that right now using the friction brakes, um, you know, and just, you know, have it all tied into the accelerator pedal. So as you lift off the accelerator pedal, because you, the, the stability control system already has the ability to apply the brakes independently of what you're doing. Yeah. That's of what, uh, you know, so, I mean, it can apply the brakes at any time to, you know, put, you know, put a, a yaw moment on the car for the stability control. So there's no reason why you couldn't just have it, you know, as you lift off the accelerator pedal, start ramping up the the braking force without ever having to touch the brake pedal. Yeah, I mean, depending on how that's tuned, that that's another thing that would annoy me. Like, I don't want it to automatically be like, you know, I want it to coast. Yeah. <laughs> it, like, well, and and you know, if you want it to coast, you know, you just kind of keep the pedal, in, you know, somewhere in the middle of its travel. You you can figure out where that point is where it'll coast, and you know, it, then you can do that. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that EVs and, and stuff are, are going to change the way we drive. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, so in, in, say, 15 or 20 years, A, we're not going to have autonomous cars, um, like, driving everywhere and completely replacing normal cars. But I, I do think that, you know, as more straight electric cars come out and, and this kind of one pedal driving becomes the thing that more people get to try. It, it's going to, to, uh, to gather some, some steam, you know, and it'll, it'll change the way we, we want to be driving and the way we drive very much the way like automatics again, sort of took over. Uh, most people prefer the automatic transmission and that has definitely changed the way people drive. Yeah. And you know, one of, um, one other uh, advantage to one pedal driving like that is you'll never have another case of sudden unintended acceleration because you'll never have, because those are all caused by pedal misapplication. So you'll never have pedal misapplication if you're, if you're only using one pedal. Oh, you would think I'm telling <laughs> you, man, people are going to come up with a way and you're telling me that people will find a way to screw up. Yeah. I mean, so 
you know, when we when we design things, it's uh, it's sort of user interface, user experience. You have to try to break it. And sometimes it's really hard to 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 break things in the way the actual users will break it, because those those uh, failure modes and like they just don't make any sense. Like you try to do stuff. You'd be amazed at the creative ways that people will find to screw things up. Yeah. And, and like, once you find out that that's what they're doing, you go, well, I, it makes you stop. And you're, you're just kind of like, why, why, why I don't understand why you would ever do anything that way. But yeah, of course it doesn't work. We never thought of that. <laughs> you know, like, and then you have to go around and fix it and, and, uh, sort of, um, you know, fine tune it so that those you know people who are going to do you know whatever with the thing you're building um, don't get well, hurt. Dur- dur- you know, during during my time as an engineer, um, you know, working on um, slip control systems, you know, a lot of the effort we put in, you know, and a lot of the stuff that went into algorithm into the control algorithms was specifically for that purpose of trying to anticipate what are the ways that a driver could do something inappropriate. Uh, oh boy. <laughs> and and then, you know, being able to anticipate that and respond uh, in a way that's going to be safe and predictable. Yeah. And I mean, I think one of the best ways that we haven't really implemented yet is just like seat mounted tasers to just sort of zap you <laughs> when you're doing something dumb, like, you know, like a dog training collar. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately the, uh, yeah, you know, the lawyers always blocked when we tried to do that. You got to zap them the worst. Yeah, yeah well, I guess yeah, that that would be a good way to start. <laughs> All right, uh, let's move on. You got yourself quoted by The Verge about uh, um, Comcast trying to use uh, self-driving cars as a vehicle to push net neutrality. You see what I did there? Yeah. So, uh, you know, Andy Hawkins at The Verge, you know, we, we talk on a fairly regular basis about stuff he's writing about transportation. <clears throat> and um, this week, um, earlier this week, uh, Comcast filed their their uh, comments on uh, net, net neutrality. Uh, the FCC is currently in a 60 day comment period. Uh, Agit Pai wants to eliminate the net neutrality rules that came in under the previous administration. Uh, Agit Pai is the current FCC chairman. Um, and uh, a former uh, lawyer for Verizon, uh, so and a guy I don't I don't agree with him. I, I don't. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm pretty sure that there is nothing that he says now that I agree with. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah. <laughs> he uh, uh, I think I think you know the the net neutrality rules are you know they're a foregone conclusion. You know I think the the uh, the comments are just a formality. Um, and regardless of what, you know, what the comments are, um, he's already decided and, and they have, a, you know, the Republicans have a majority on the commission now, um, that, so, you know, those rules are done, but, um, Comcast, uh, in particular seeking to uh, retain its position as the most hated company in America, <laughs> um, it, you know, they filed their, uh, their comments. And, uh, one of the things that they included in there was they said, you know, you need to have the ability for carriers to do paid prioritization of data on the network uh, in order to support uh, automated driving. So I read that and I was just like, well, that's nonsense. There's this like, why would you ever want to induce, introduce that kind of latency to something as important as automated driving? And then you went on to address it. Exactly. Yeah. So, 
you know, the, their premise is that, you know, well, you know, uh, the messages going back and forth between vehicles, you know, for automated driving and, and things like, uh, you know, map updates and so on, you know, those need to be prioritized on the network. Well, the, the reality is that the, the uh, vehicle to vehicle communications and vehicle to pedestrian and vehicle to cyclist and whatever, all of those communications, you know, those need to happen absolutely in real time. And regardless of whether they end up using, you know, dedicated short range communications technology or, um, you know, the, the LTE or 5G technologies that companies like Qualcomm are pushing, uh, none of that stuff is actually ever going to go through the Internet. All of that stuff is directly going to be peer to peer communications between those vehicles. And so there's nothing it shouldn't it's never going to touch Comcast or any other carriers network. Yeah, because, you know, what's so, really so good at, uh, at sort of making those those very <laughs> close proximity communications links happen is uh, radio transmitters and receivers, radio transceivers, right. shall we say. Uh, yeah, tra well, tra transceivers that aren't talking to a network, they're creating their own network on the fly with anything that is within range. Yeah. And uh, uh, so so Comcast's argument in their their comments was completely bullshit and disingenuous. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> I do say. Uh, and, then, uh, you know, the, the things that are going to go through the network, like, you know, map updates and over the air software. They're not critical like that. Yeah. They're not time critical. And, you know, if it takes a few extra seconds to get those, it's not going to matter. And so there's no there's no need for anybody to be paying Comcast or Verizon or AT&T or any other carrier to prioritize those messages. Well, and they did come back and try to clarify it a, a little bit and, and say, well, no, we were talking about um, the, uh, the the LTEV, um, which th like that's that's a spec that doesn't exist yet is is that correct like that's not not something uh, they've, that's... they've got they've got a spec but there's no there's no uh standards for the the hardware yet it's nobody's implemented it yet um it's still at best several years away yeah. uh, from being deployed anywhere but as i was saying earlier whether you use LTEV or dsrc doesn't matter yeah. because the LTEV is also designed for direct peer-to-peer -peer communication well, that's, that's true uh, but it's the, not going to go through the network the whole thing that i take away from this is while comcast tries to basically they're trying to grab spectrum because while it's supposedly the the property of the people uh the actions of the fcc over the last 20 plus years have shown that no they think the the spectrum belongs to the highest bidder um and, and not just in this instance but they've they basically sold off the airwaves which they were supposed to hold in public trust uh, when the well, FCC was founded, they, they they did that at the direction of Congress. Yeah, no, I I understand, and Congress did because it at the direction of used, big business. You know, they they used to hand out spectrum licenses, you know, to radio stations and TV stations free of charge. You know, they 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 used to never pay for that spectrum. You know, they they needed they needed a license from the FCC right. to use a a chunk of spectrum, um, but they got it for free. You know, and in exchange for that, you know, they had to provide certain. Uh, services to the public, you know, things like news, news uh, broadcasts and, and, you know, various other things. Right. And like but, the, the civil defense and all that. Uh, right. Emergency warnings but, and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, as you said, in the last 20 years, you know, they've started um, selling the spectrum at auction to get the highest price. And that, you know, that was explicitly added, you know, as a directive from Congress. You know, Congress said 
no more giving this stuff away for free. We want we want it paid. For. Which is like it's it's hugely frustrating because uh, th- these are, you know, it, it again, it, it just it, it you, you you wind up creating these enormous companies. And this is this is like this is critical stuff. This is communications. It's it's. Mm-hmm. It's it's broadcasting and spectrum and it's it, um it has turned stuff like news, which was already on the path to being um sort of ratings driven and profit centered. Like news for decades did not make money until they figured out how to make it make money. And and that's why it, it, you know, it this is this is a discussion that is going to teeter <laughs> far, far into media criticism. So I'll stop it here, but just say like the changes that this this kind of policy has wrought have not been in the interest of the everyday consumer. And so what's going to happen is there's still going to, the Comcast is going to continue to try to grab this 5.9 gigahertz spectrum. Um, in the meantime, well, I mean the, the 5.9 gigahertz spectrum thing is, is kind of a separate issue from the net neutrality issue. Comcast, right. their carriers would like to have that spectrum, but that's, that's really a separate, separate issue. You know what's what's at issue here is that they are trying to use the the fact that um, the commission, uh, or at least a couple of members of the commission um, who are on one particular side of this, apparently have no understanding of how autonomous vehicles and and com- connected vehicles actually work um, to snow them. You know because this is something that is. Big in the news, everybody's all excited about autonomous and connected vehicles, but they don't, nobody really understands it except for the few people that are actually working on it. And so Comcast is basically, you know, just saying, you know, throwing it out there and, you know, thro- throwing every argument they can into the, into the mix, you know, to basically just overwhelm them with BS. Yeah. They're trying to blind them with science and that's, uh, um, you know, that's unfortunate. You know science. Yeah. Um, that's unfortunate. They're basically trying to advocate for the creation of fast lanes, which then will set the precedent for uh, sort of fast lanes across all of the internet services that these companies offer. And, you know, as modern Americans, we've sort of built our lives around having, you know, it, it goes back to the idea of the internet being a utility versus uh, I forget how it's classified now, but it's, it's, it's a utility. I mean, I couldn't, it should, I, I, the, the the companies running the backbone should be just be common carriers. I mean, for the yeah. for Christ's sake, they grew out of the deregulation of the baby bells. It is a utility. Yeah, <laughs> but all right, that's this is a different issue than cars. But <laughs> my my point was, uh, car makers are going. They're going to figure this out. They're you know they even if they just form like an industry working group and they develop a, a standard and a spec and, and regardless of which spectrum it operates on, that's sort of implementation. Well, of they've, the and they've, they've already done that, right. Which is already standards for, for V to X communications. Right. That's going to happen. The, right. the, the, and it's, it's already happening. Um, GM is already selling right. acts that have V to V Toyota um, as well. Right. To, Toyota is in Japan and they're probably going to launch some cars here um, probably by early part of next year, if not sooner. So by the time you've got, and, and Volkswagen recently announced that they're going to launch it, uh, launch their V2V system in 2019 uh, using DSRC technology. Right. So by the time you've got automakers already putting this stuff in cars, like it, it's very quickly going to hit critical mass. And like that's that's the way it's going to happen, especially because uh, it's not another subscription <laughs> for, you know, an owner to pay pay for. And as we move forward with more mandated safety technology, you know, if it proves to be useful safety 
uh, enhancements, which, you know, most of the stuff does wind up to be. That's why we've got mandated backup cameras and mandated seatbelts and anti-lock brakes and all, like all of those things. They were options at one time and then they became required standard safety equipment. I, I am assuming that if if V2, uh, a V2X turns out to be pretty effective, uh, it's going to be mandated. Well, are you going to mandate well, that people there's, subscribe there's already, to an LTE? Yeah, there's, there's actually already um, uh, a mandate um, that was, uh, there was a, a notice proposed rulemaking issued uh, back in December uh, by NHTSA. They've been working on it for several years uh, to mandate V2V. Uh, and then, you know, there was a comment period associated with that. Um, and uh, that's uh, expiring shortly, I believe. And, uh, you know, if it was to be enacted, it would become FMVSS Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard uh, 150. Um, and it would go into effect around 2020 uh, to mandate V2V in all new vehicles. Um, unfortunately, now under the current administration, it seems probably pretty unlikely that it's going to be enacted anytime soon. So it's probably just going to sit on the shelf for the foreseeable future, uh, which is unfortunate, but um, there is, there is already a regulation that's been written. Yeah. So I think it's going to happen faster than Comcast is going to get its way, but in this business friendly environment, uh, who knows? Well, like I say, even, even if Comcast gets its way, you know, on net neutrality, it has no impact on V2V. It's irrelevant. Right. It's just, it has impact on, on you and me. Ha. Yes. Ha. I like Indeed what I did there. <laughs> Not feed of anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> so Comcast is still hated and uh, we, now we have more fodder to hate them more. And uh, while I stew over that for the rest of the evening, I'm going to go to bed angry tonight because of that. <laughs> um, and I don't even have cable. I told Verizon to shove it. Uh, and before I, the best thing was switching from Comcast to Fios and just being canceling that Comcast bill. I was like, no, I don't want your garbage anymore. You suck. Um, well, unfortunately, here where I am, I'm I'm still stuck on Comcast for any kind of reasonable Internet access. Um, but I, I can live with that. It's, you know, the service is actually pretty good now. Um, and uh, but we don't pay for we don't pay them for TV. Yeah. Way. I mean, yeah, I pay for other services like Netflix and Amazon and yeah. Hulu and stuff. That's exactly. Do you have an antenna? We put up an antenna. Yeah, and I, I have an antenna up on the roof. Too. You, you know, it's beautiful broadcast hd it looks so good you know it looks so good but the content is so not good oh yeah well it's also <laughs> the problem is it looks great but there's nothing on there i actually want to watch that's that's true it has cured me of uh watching stuff like food network and then going to the kitchen at 12 30 at night and making like you know ganache yeah. <laughs> so um before we devolve let's get, let's, let's, get some, right. let's get into some uh listener listener questions so we did have a question uh i had another one as well but uh the first one there's one, came, there's one on facebook right too, so. so this is what tom uh wanted us to spend his money he says yeah. i have a 90 mile commute each way uh wow 90 miles each way Yikes. That's nuts. Uh, he's got a 2009 Jetta GLI with 105,000 miles on it. So it's time to replace it. Uh, my first question is why, but we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, need something comfortable for long commute and good gas mileage. Uh, I'm looking at a Honda Accord V6, Kia Optima Turbo, or 2015 VW Passat diesel. Problem is Cheyenne, uh, Cheyenne Wyoming 
does not have a VW dealer, and that is where I work, so concerned with that. Uh, any suggestions? Budget is under 30000 needs to be reliable, uh, long-lasting, and uh, not a performance dog. Um, and the Subarus and the HRV apparently are so slow, he's in Denver uh, with the thin air uh, that he can't drive them. Yeah, so... Um because he's he's at altitude, um, you know, I think uh, he's definitely better off with something that's turbocharged um, over uh, something that's naturally aspirated. And, and uh, both the HRV and the uh, uh, and most of the Subarus are, are naturally aspirated now. So um, rather than the Accord V6, um, I would actually uh, if he if can if he can wait a few months. Uh, I would actually recommend maybe waiting until the, the new 2018 Accords arrive uh, because uh, rather than the V6, they will have uh, two engine, two turbocharged engine options, a 1.5 liter, a higher output version of what's in the Civic now, uh, and also uh, a two liter, which is based on the, uh, the Civic Type R engine. Which is going to uh, be in the, um, the Accord Sport. That's yeah. That's, that's the yeah well, there's actually going to be two two Accord Sports. There's the base Accord Sport with the one five, and then there's the Sport Touring. I think is what they're calling okay. it, um, or this the Sport two point oh. So, um, which which will have the two liter. My assumption would be that the one point five liter Accord Sport would slot under that thirty thousand um, dollar threshold. They the even the two liter may very well um, hit that th- hit underneath that thirty thousand. But um, and even the I think the base two liter Accord, uh, not even the Sport, just the base two liter, it's going to be two hundred and fifty five horsepower, um, and it should come in under thirty thousand uh, dollars. And uh, you know, depending on what your your transmission preferences are, both of those engines are going to be available with manuals. Yeah. So that's that's a plus. So the Optima Turbo um, or the Hyundai Sonata Turbo are other good options. Um, what else? Uh, the you know again given given your the altitude issue i'd probably stay away from the uh the camry since those are all naturally aspirated um but yeah i think either the accord or the optima uh would would be very good choices and you can definitely get them within your price range yeah i mean i was um i haven't really priced up i was thinking like the fusion sport but that's probably going to be above yeah, the Fusion Sport's going to be over thirty grand, but you could you could get a two liter turbo um, Fusion or the one five um, for well under thirty thousand dollars. In fact, at this point, given the way um, midsize sedan sales, <laughs> very well under thirty, you might you might even be able to get a Fusion Sport, you know, after incentives for under thirty grand. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, I'd probably stay away from the uh, the Passat. Uh, well, actually, at this point, you probably won't even be able to get a Passat. I think they're probably all sold by now because they had a limited, you know, unless you're buying a used one, they they had a, a very limited supply of unsold 2015s uh, that were left over. You're, you know, you're, you're talking Passat diesels. Yeah. 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 Well, that's what Tom mentioned right. in the message, the Passat diesel. Uh, so they had a, a limited supply of Passats, Jettas, and Golf diesels uh, that were sitting on dealers lots at the time they stopped sales in September, 2015. Um, and I think they're probably all gone now. If you can get one, you know, you can probably, you can get a screaming deal on it, but I don't, I doubt there's any left. Yeah. Um, I wonder about, see, I was thinking of like the, the Buick Regal, not the new one, but because they're bringing out a new one, you could get a Regal, 
because they they make a turbocharged. Well, even even the new one, um, they just announced pricing on that, and it's actually I think it starts at like twenty five grand, which is I think for the two liter. Is that that's naturally aspirated though, or is that no two liter turbo? turbo? Uh, Let me see. Yeah, I was surprised. the The base price on that is is going to be quite reasonable. That's the Sportback or the um. Yeah, the Sportback. The Tour X is going to be more expensive, but uh, let's see. Because I mean, that's a. I I I'm not sure how much of a flyer you want to necessarily take on a first year car, especially a first year GM. Um, Well, you know, it's it's a you know. you know, the, the Regal as a model is new. Uh, you know, you've got new body work and stuff, but the platform has been around for a couple of years. I mean, it's, it's basically the same platform that's under the, uh, the Malibu, which is, you know, it's a very good platform. Uh, so you're not really going to go wrong. I don't think you're really going to have any problem with that. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that's another, I mean, I, I say that because it's sort of top of mind. Um, this is always that sort of that issue is, uh, we could just keep throwing cars out. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I do think that at altitude like that, you're going to want something either turbocharged or supercharged. Uh, it, it, turbos are easy to find now. Uh, and supercharging is neat to geeks, but I don't, I don't think anybody else really cares. Yeah. And, you know, in the mainstream segment segment, there aren't a whole lot of supercharged options. In fact, off the top of my head, I can't really think uh, of I, any. The only thing I can really think of is, is some Volvo models but you wouldn't be getting them for under 30 unless you're buying used. Um, and that's turbo and supercharged. Um, and I mean, if you're going to spend 30 grand on a supercharged car, just buy a used CTSV because. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, and you know, that's, that's supercharged anyway. So yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So the, um, the Regal Sportback starts at 26. That's a really good uh, deal. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's what the two liter turbo. So there you go. Um, please buy that and let us know how it is. And if it's a piece of crap, don't blame us. <laughs> <laughs> you got what you paid for. Right. No, I mean, I think that that's going to be, a, I think you're right. I think it's, it's, there's always some teething issues. Uh, yeah, I, but... I don't, I don't think, I don't think there's much risk with that one. I mean, you know, it's, it's an engine that, you know, has been around, uh, you know, it's used, it's already used in a lot of, uh, GM products. Um, and you know, the platform's been around, there's not, you know, other than the, the body design, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot, you know, mechanically that's new about this car. Yeah. Um, sometimes automakers and GM's not alone in this. Uh, they have this uncanny ability to take like good, well-proven hardware and, and make some, some changes and then just completely lose it on stuff like electrical systems that like were fine and now they're not and things. So I, I understand the trepidation of a, of a first year car. Um, but, uh, I, I do also wonder, like, uh, you know, in that, in that case, then, you know, you you're ca- go, with, go with the Honda. Yeah. The Accord. Um, I do wonder why at 105,000 it's time to retire the current car. Uh, have you owned a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand mile Volkswagen recently? Um, no, I've owned a hundred thousand mile Volvos. I, I get that. Uh, so if that's, if that's the case, I understand, but yeah, I'm just, just asking. I've I've never gotten to a hundred thousand with with either of the Volkswagens that we've owned, but you know, given given what has happened, you know, in the fifty to sixty thousand mile range, um, I'm I'm glad I didn't keep them up to a hundred thousand. Okay, that's that's fair. Um, 
All right. I have another uh, podcast question. It was sent directly to me. So this this one is fancy. Um, is the 2018 hybrid uh, in the Accord a different or revised system from the 2017? The uh, the press release and articles are unclear about it. Um, yes, it is different and or revised. Um, yeah, we, we have they didn't tell us much detail on it other than to say that it is a new updated system. Um, actually, I think they, they may have even used the words all new for whatever that's worth when you're talking to automotive PR. Yeah, that, that doesn't ever mean all new. <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's at the very least an updated, uh, version of the, uh, the two, the two motor hybrid system, uh, that they use today in the, uh, um, in the Accord. Yeah. I mean, I would, Accord. it's, it's. At the very least, it's heavily and that's revised. you know that's one of the I think that might it's one of the most efficient um, midsize sedans you can get. That's a that's a satisfying hybrid system to drive, uh, if I recall. It's been a little while since I had a hybrid Accord, but I remember not hating it. I remember actually being impressed with it uh, because it didn't it, it, like it's a, it's still an Accord, so you still enjoy driving it. Yeah, I mean it's it's hard hard to go very far wrong with uh with one of those uh or uh or the Civic. You know, that's also another great option. Um, you know, the and like I said the new Accord, um, you know, if you don't want to go hybrid, you know, they're going to offer the uh manual with both engines. So Right. All right. Um what do we have? Do we get any others? Anything via There was Twitter one other in Twitter uh from Shane asking uh, about our thoughts on automated law enforcement such as speed and red light cams and particularly drones now being experimented with. I hate it. I hate all of it. I got a ticket like 3 weeks ago or more than that now, but um and it was a very red expensive light, red ticket. Light camera? No. Or a speed camera. Revenue agent sitting on the side of the road. Uh <laughs> And it was not. There were, there were a bunch of them out today when I went to Detroit. It's uh, okay. I understand like that they have a very difficult job. So I'm not the kind of guy that when I get pulled over, I make a stink about it. But I it also galls me because like we're we're spending time for like a salaried trained officer to sit there in a car that we're also spending money on, burning fuel that we're also spending money on. So you can then sort of shoot your lidar gun at people and pull them over. And and again, I was actively driving, <laughs> you know, like had both hands on the wheel, made a pass aggressively and tailgated. Well, there's, there's your problem. At, and got, yeah, got pinched for doing 85 and a 55 because I was going Ooh. downhill and I passed, you know, like you pass, you stomp on it yeah. anyway. Uh, fine. Whatever. But I, I don't like speed enforcement and I, I know why they do it and it has nothing to do with safety. And that really bothers me. Um, so, uh, since, I mean, you know, since you were, you were, uh, nailed by, a um, an actual human officer, what about automated enforcement? I think that's, I, I take it that's even worse. It's even worse because often it would be one thing if it were systems that the, uh, you know, local municipalities, the local constabulary, as you were, as uh, uh, as you wish, um, were to purchase and install and administrate, but that's not what happens. You get companies that come in and they sign a contract and they set it up and they keep the data and they're the ones that control the length of the yellow and you know basically 
mess with things so that the systems are you have no choice as a motorist like you're going to get caught by the yellow and you're going to get these outrageous tickets and these companies get a cut and that that's happened time and time again well and and the other thing is you know studies have also shown that uh you know having these these automated systems um actually gets you know ends up causing more accidents well yeah uh, because the short the short yellows and things like that cause people to break more aggressively for an intersection. Um, and so you end up having like more rear end collisions, you know, instead of people, you know, going through the intersection, you know, you, you end up having people, you know, break, um, much more aggressively than they normally would to try to avoid a ticket. Yeah. I mean, look, if you're going to sell these things on the premise of safety, you're, you're just plain lying. Um, if like, if you just wanted to, you know, basically shadow tax every person who's driving say it <laughs> like it's 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 not okay um but it's worse that you know you're you're trying to say that you're you're doing it in you know in the sense of of safety and yet the the drone you know the idea of drones like at a certain point speed traps to me are are kind of like entrapment and uh i realize that driving is a privilege and there are laws and and that's that's all all fine um I, I don't I don't have a solution. Well, I just have complaints. What bothers what particularly bothers me, you know, is when you have zone either zones where um, local officials have arbitrarily set a low speed limit. Yeah. Because they know that, you know, people are going to be coming into that zone, um, you know, from a higher speed zone, you know, at you know excessive speeds. And, uh, you know, this is something that happens in a lot of rural areas in particular, a lot of rural towns. Um, Ohio, a lot of Ohio, a number of Ohio towns are particularly notorious for this and have actually gotten um, busted by the courts and, you know, forced to stop doing this in recent years. But, um, you know, it, it, places where, you know, you'll have you know, a group of four or five police cruisers, you know, set up, you know, one, you know, uh, catching people, you know, on radar or LIDAR and then uh, having four or five cars down the road, you know, picking people off, you know, so they'll radio ahead, you know, you know, to which cars to pick off and, and write tickets for, you know, I mean, that's, you know, that's clearly not about safety. It is, you know, as you say, you know, it's about revenue generation. Right. If it were about safety, they wouldn't be out there, you know, with, with radar guns, you know, that's, well, if it, I mean, if it was really about safety, you know, then rather than setting speed limits arbitrarily, you know, they would, you know, take a more scientific approach, you know, which is to actually measure the speed at which traffic flow is going and, you know, set it, you know, set the speed limit at the 85th percentile speed. You know, that's been proven to actually reduce accidents. Yeah. Well, and to take uh, and you would you would lengthen the yellows instead of shorten mm -hmm. them. Um, but to take a, a somewhat sort of libertarian ap approach to it as well as like, you know what? Don't waste an officer's time sitting on the side of the road. If if it's about safety and, you know, finding the bad drivers, the bad drivers will reveal themselves to you <laughs> yeah. when they crash. Uh, the, the, the problem is, like, obviously, innocent well, people get hurt when they crash, though. They, you know, they, you know, there's innocent bystanders. Right. And I, and I understand that. So it's, it, we're never going to make it 100 percent safe. We could train our drivers better. We uh, I don't have a great solution for reducing things like speeding. It's sort of like there's really no solution for reducing people using their their devices. They just have to experience some bad consequences. Even when you make it illegal to use a handheld device in a car, 
people still do it. They just hide it. And which is even worse because then they're further looking down, you know, like it, just, people are going to do that. They're dopamine addicts. You get a, you know, you get psychologically uh, a little, you know, hit of, of enjoyment from checking Facebook while you drive, you know, like it's, it's, there's so much around this whole issue. I'm just going to say, I don't like it. <laughs> well, and you know, uh, related to, um, you know, revenue generation, you know, that make that's, it's going to pose an interesting problem for a lot of um, these law enforcement agencies, a lot of municipalities and states when, if, and when we do get to a point of uh, having automated vehicles that are programmed to obey speed limits. Yeah. If all the vehicles are obeying the speed limit, what are these guys going to do for revenue? Yeah. And you know, we've, we've talked about, well, yeah. I mean, as we saw in Baltimore, they're going to job, yeah. you know, truck drivers and, and taxi drivers and, you know, ride hailing drivers being put out of work by automated vehicles. But, you know, there's also you know a lot of other types of jobs that are going to get dramatically reduced by automated driving as well. Yeah. And I mean, like, look, I don't want to make this out to be sort of a, a. A screed against law enforcement, they have a very tough job to do. I respect the hell out of anybody who's who's going to be a public servant. Um, and they're out there like it's a they never know what they're walking up on when they pull somebody over. So I, I, I get all of those aspects of the job. And I I don't I don't want that to be misconstrued. Like there's certainly a, a lot to this issue that is not covered by this podcast and we'll just leave it not covered. But yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. You know, I, I and I, you know, I agree that, you know, I think in terms of actually making our environment safer, you know, having them out there writing tickets, you know, is not an effective use of their skills uh, and, and what, you know, what they're able to do. I don't, I don't think it's, it's an effective use of time or, or resources. Um, and just as a, a final note on, uh, on all of this, uh, I was sitting out on my deck last night, um, doing some writing and I heard <laughs> an unusual clip clop coming from across, <laughs> across the neighbor's yard. And I looked up and I saw two Washtenaw County Sheriff's deputies strolling down um, the street, the next street over on horseback. And then they came around the corner in front of my house. And I was not even aware the Washtenaw County Sheriff's Department had horses or officers said ride horses. But apparently they do this on occasion. They'll they'll go through neighborhoods and ride around on horseback. So what was the reason for them being on horseback? Uh, they said they do this a few times a week in the summertime when the weather's nice. You know, it's, you know instead of patrolling in cruisers, they'll patrol on horseback. Hey, all right. Uh, personally, I think it's it has to do with the fact that they just don't want to drive over the new speed bumps that were put on our street a few weeks ago. But I, you know what? That's that's fine. The horses get some exercise. At, at least the horses were equipped with bags yeah. to uh, keep the street clean. Right. Well, that was a big problem. It was a big problem with 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 cars uh, or before cars was was horse exhaust. And then, you know, people, <laughs> yes, people were pretty happy when we had just car exhaust that just dissipated in the air. So. All right. Um. I, we've had a, a rambling, interesting podcast. I'm I feel like it's interesting. So it's interesting. Hope, hopefully the, the listeners will get to this point in the show and, and deem it still interesting as well. Um, just a couple of reminders before we go. Um, the uh, Hespin rally coming up in uh, Detroit on August 6th. So if you're in southeast Michigan and want to hook up with some people in cool cars and support a good cause, the 
cholangiocarcinoma foundation um go to hespinrally.com and and sign up and make a donation and join us for a road rally that sunday morning um and then uh next weekend um the uh the 29th of july well actually there's activities going on the whole weekend uh from friday through sunday uh 27th to the 29th uh, the Concours of America uh, in Plymouth, Michigan at the Inn, of Saint, Inn at St. John's. All right. Uh, well, on that note, I think, uh, you know, we've done Podcast 32 justice. Uh, feel free to leave us some, some reviews in Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever you, you get it. Uh, tell your friends. Uh, f- shoot us some feedback. We, we like questions, especially ones that make us talk in a, uh, a sort of thoughtful roundabout manner about hot button issues and um, we'll see everybody next week all right bye you know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator book guided tours activities excursions and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.